Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. And the word of the Lord reads, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. The late John Stott once wrote, Christians are caught in the tension between the already of the kingdom's inauguration and the not yet of its consummation, and this tension can be painful. So this text in Romans has been a source of comfort to me ever since I was a pretty new Christian. In fact, Romans was one of the very first books that I had actually studied in in depth as a new Christian. And believe me, there are a lot of verses here to wrestle with. Uh, But this particular text spoke to my heart right away. Because it really seemed to me that it reflected my own personal Christian experience. The idea that I do, you know, that, that, that I want to do right... But for some reason, I can't always seem to be able to do it, right? And the wrong things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And and I just would struggle with that. How many of you can relate to that, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) But these words were, you know, were a great comfort to me from Paul because they're not just coming from some Christian person that I met. This isn't, these aren't words coming from just some pastor that I, I got to know. These words were coming from the Apostle Paul, right? The big A Apostle Paul, right? The greatest missionary that has ever lived. The, the man who spread the gospel all over Asia and, uh, and into Europe, This is the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He seemed to be saying that in his own life, he experiences a battle within himself that seemed just like the battle that I was facing. Again, I want you to hear these words. For I do not know, or for I do not understand my own actions. (laughs) For I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. 
right, then he goes on, he says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Doesn't that sound like your own Christian life at times? I know that it sounds like mine. As a Christian, I am painfully aware. As a man who understands the law of God, I am painfully aware that I am not always what I ought to be. And I don't always do what I ought to do. Right? I still struggle in this life. Right? But I can still, like Paul, be a child of grace. And I bring this up because the natural gravitational pull for Christians over time tends to be towards some form of, you just need to work harder. Some form of legalism. You come to faith in Christ and you become aware of your sinfulness. You become aware of how sinful you are and then you try to the best of your ability to live according to the law of God or some set of external rules. And, and, and that is either because you feel conviction because of your sin or you end up being around a, a bunch of Christians or preachers who tell you that's what you ought to be doing. And so you begin to try to live your life as, as best as you can, as what you think a Christian should be living like. And you try really hard not to cuss, and you try really hard not to get upset, and you try really hard to be joyful all the time because somebody said somewhere along the lines that, that Christians are always joyful no matter what. Who's heard that before? Yeah. All right, and then, right, and then you try really hard to be nice all the time because guess what? Somebody told you that Christians are always nice, that there is this 11th commandment that thou shalt be nice, right? And you try really hard to do what, what good Christians do and, and, and not do what the rest of the world does, but then you realize, finally, you can't do it because it's going to happen, right? It happens. Somebody either cuts you off in traffic or your boss demands that you work overtime when you have plans or your kids are fighting in the back room and then finally you hear the loud crash, right? And then the, the F-bomb shoots out of your mouth faster, then your mind can say, you can't say that. Right? <laughs> That's right. right. You're a Christian. You're not supposed to say that. And then suddenly you realize you're not as in control as you pretend to be. You're not as joyful as you pretend to be. In fact, you realize you've not been very joyful at all. You've just been putting a smile on your face pretending. Right? And you're not even sharing with Christ with other people like you're supposed to be. In fact, you find yourself avoiding people because you just don't want to talk to them. Right? And, then you, and then you realize that you just lied to the guy out on the corner who said, hey man, can you spare some change? And you're like, nope, even though you got a pocket full of it. Right? And then you go to church and you're all smiles and you're praise the Lord. But the moment you get out to the car and your kids got on your nerves, you're like, ah. Right? Right? And then you find out that someone you know has been cheating on their spouse or doing something wrong, and you just, for some reason, can't wait to tell somebody about it, even though you disguise it as, I got a prayer request for my friend. You come face to face with the fact that you just cannot live the way that supposedly Christians are supposed to live. You can't do it. You can't keep all the rules. You can't do all the things that good Christians are supposed to do. You can't seem to avoid the things that Christians are supposed to avoid. And then... 
even though you try really hard to become obedient to God's law, you just really end up in three different places. There are three options that usually happens to the Christian. Number one is either you become a hypocrite and you just pretend that you're keeping the rules all the time. And, you know, every time you talk to somebody, you know, you're good and praise the Lord and it's always right and, you know, and that you all, you've got it all under control and, and, and you're even demanding everybody else be the good Christian that you're pretending to be. That's legalism, right? Or option two is you fall into self-loathing. You tell yourself, man, I must not even be a Christian. I must not even be saved because it seems like I can't seem to love the people the way I'm supposed to love them. And I can't seem to not be upset when I'm, you know, when I'm not supposed to be upset. I can't seem to do all the things that Christians are supposed to do. I must be just some pathetic loser. God must really hate me. Right? Or option three, you fall into antinomianism. Right? The idea that, you know what? I'm saved by grace. The law of God is just irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Right? So, so I don't worry about that stuff anymore. Right? We're under grace, not the law, and so it doesn't matter. As long as I just believe in Jesus, I can live however I want to live and do what I want to do. I'm just a carnal Christian. That's where our legalism tends to lead us. And, and I want you to know, I have experienced in my life every one of these options in my own Christian walk. I have fallen into legalism and hypocrisy. I have fallen into self-loathing and doubt about my salvation. And I certainly have spent my time in antinomianism, right? But the truth is, all of these are in error. All of these are, are an error response to the call upon us in the Christian life. In fact, we talked about in, in, in Romans chapter 7, Paul addresses our relationship to the law of God. How does a believer who has been saved by grace alone through faith, right? How, do, how, does, how does he relate to the moral law of God, which is a revelation of God's own divine character, which is a, a revelation of his standard by which he's going to judge the world? Paul addresses that. He makes it clear that we are indeed saved by grace through faith, but, there, but those who are in Christ will supernaturally begin to grow in obedience to the law. And he addresses both extreme responses to the gospel of grace, the legalism and the requirement to obey the law to be saved or, or to, to prove that you're saved, and antinomianism, the view that the, that the law of God is irrelevant for the Christian. In Romans 7, Paul destroys both legalism and antinomianism. Paul said that those who are in Christ are freed from bondage to the law because the law cannot save them. And so they have a new master, Christ. But then he also said, the law isn't irrelevant. The law actually is good. The law is holy and righteous because the law reveals what sin is and it reveals the sin within our human nature and it reveals God's coming justice against sin. And so what we come to understand is we are justified by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. But those who are justified have been supernaturally transformed and have died to sin. And as such, we begin to grow in obedience to the law. But what about when you believe? Right? When you, when you believe to be born again and you have committed your life to Christ and you've repented and believed the gospel and you have seen in your life some changes 
that demonstrates that you have truly come to Christ, but then it seems that there are times in your life all you can do is mess things up. What about those times when you know you need to be doing more, when you know for a fact you ought to be more loving than you really are, when you certainly need to be more gracious than you have been, when you need to be compassionate, but for some reason you just can't push yourself, force yourself to do it. Right? There are those times where there's a battle in us with bitterness and unforgiveness and lust and envy and pride. And it finds that there are periods of time in our own life as Christians, we lose that battle. What about then? What about when it seems like it's hopeless? Like you're just never, ever, ever going to get victory over that. Well, Paul, that's what Paul is actually addressing in this text right here. Living as a born-again believer in a fallen, broken world with a fallen human nature that has not been fully put to death yet. A fallen nature that's not been fully redeemed yet. And we're going to take some time this morning as we prepare our hearts for Christmas to look at this. Now, before we get too far in this text, there are three things we ought to keep in mind as we unpack this text, and that will help us to understand what Paul's getting at. Number one is what we've talked about before, but I think it's worth talking about again. It is the already, but not yet, nature of our salvation. Right? We've talked about this in Romans before, right? That we, when we come to faith in Christ, we are saved. It is a done deal. We are justified by faith in Christ. It's a historical reality, right? That does not get undone. You were saved, you know, right now, present tense, right? You're justified because Christ's righteousness is given to you and your sins are covered by his blood. Praise the Lord for that. But we are not fully saved yet from the power of sin, meaning we still live in a fallen, broken world. We might have a new nature, but we still are subject to the sin that still lives in our bodies. Right? There are those times where we are reminded of the fact that we're not perfect yet, not even close. Right? So we, in a very real sense, have been saved and that we are being saved. And there will come a time when, when Christ returns or calls us home, right? When we'll be perfected or when, when it's all going to come together, when we will not even have the presence of sin to hinder us, where it'll be perfect. That's the salvation that we long for when God makes it all right. So we have been saved the already, but we've not fully, completely been saved in the fullest sense. It's already, but not yet. That's an important part of the Christian life we need to hold on to and remember. Number two, we need to understand the overarching point that Paul's making about the law. The law is good. Right? The law is holy and it's important. The law reveals for us very clearly the very nature of God. He is moral, he is perfect, he is righteous, he is just. The law also reveals for us the perfect standard that God requires for those to have fellowship with him. The, the perfect standard that Christ upheld for us. Right? So the law is important, but the law itself is powerless to save anyone. No one is going to come to God and faith in God by works of the law by themselves because you can't do it. 
That's something we need to keep in mind. That's the truth, right? The overarching point that Paul's making is the law is good, but it cannot save you. Number three, we need to get really clear about who it is that Paul's even talking about here when he says, I, right? And the reason why this is important is because there's been a lot of debate over, the, over, over, over many centuries about who Paul is talking about when he is saying, I, right? When I struggle to do this and I struggle to do that, he's like, there are people that, that aren't really sure about who Paul's talking about. So who is Paul talking about? Well, there's three basic options or three categories of people that, that Paul's talking about. I mean, there's more than that, but they break down in three little categories. Number one is Paul referring to himself as an unregenerate believer? Is he talking about himself before he came to Christ? There are some people that believe that. In fact, there are people who, who hold on to that perspective that were as early as origin, right? As the church father origin. They believed that Paul was talking about his life before he became a believer because they could not imagine somebody like Paul, the super apostle Paul, wrestling with sin the way the common man would wrestle with, right? And so they believed that, that he was talking about himself before his conversion. I disagree with that perspective. I, like, like Augustine and Luther believed that he, and Calvin, that he was talking about his own life as a believer, as somebody who is actually regenerate, and the reason why I believe that is, is because of what he says, right? He talks about loving the law. He talks about having high respect for the law. Sinners don't do that. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. The, so, the, so the second option is Paul's talking to himself or about himself as a believer. And then the third option that people think is that Paul's referring to himself, but not as he is now, but as when he was like a new Christian, a carnal Christian or an immature Christian. They say, well, immature you know, Christians wouldn't have these kinds of battles. And there's more to it than that, but that's just the, the summary of the position. And, and again, I would, I would disagree with that perspective. Um, I believe that Paul is, is speaking about himself as he currently is. And the reason why I believe that is because the language is in the first person uh, present tense active. It's now. He's talking about who he is. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to agree with me on this, this last point of whether Paul's referring to himself as before he became a believer or as an immature Christian or as a fully mature Christian. You can disagree with me on that because guess what? There are people I know and respect that disagree with me on that. The point being, though, is, is there was a point in Paul's life that he was struggling with sin, and I think it's educational for us and how we relate to that and how we live in that. And so I just want to encourage you. I think that the Apostle Paul struggled as a, as a mature believer with the war between his flesh and spirit, just like the rest of us. And because of that, I find great encouragement and hope in this text. In fact, let's turn, turn with me to um, chapter 7, verse 14. And Paul opens up and begins with, For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am flesh, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Right? He, obviously, if you remember, he was talking about the law is good, the law is holy, the law is righteous. Right? And he says that the, that the law is spiritual. Right? Well, what does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is the law is like God, because God is spirit. 
He's not material, he's spirit. So the, so the law reflects God's nature, right? It is spiritual because God is spiritual, which means the law is holy because God is holy. It's righteous because, because God is righteous. The law reveals the very character of God, so it's spiritual. But then it's to that that he contrasts himself and he says, I am of the flesh. Paul's referring to his human nature which is, by the way, unlike God. Remember, we, as creatures, were born of spirit and of human nature, right? This is the reason why Jesus had to come into the world to redeem us. This is the reason why he had to, to come to the earth and become a man. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It's the incarnation that God became what? Flesh. He became something he wasn't before. He took on a human nature so that he can live a perfect, obedient life to God's law for us. And so what Paul is saying is his human nature is not like God's spiritual nature. And more importantly, that human nature has not been fully redeemed yet. His human nature, like ours, is still indwelt with sin. Hence the expression here, sold under sin. Now we can spend a bunch of Sundays debating about what that means, but really the essence of what he's saying here is my human nature is still bothered by, hindered by, affected by indwelling sin. And so Paul says that the law is spiritual and it reflects the character of God, but my nature doesn't. In fact, it's not holy it is not righteous and it's not just. The only way I could be righteous is because Christ made me righteous by what he did. So I'm still prone to sin. And then he says in verse 15, for because I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but what I but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, this is where Paul reveals for me that he's talking about himself as a believer. Because he has a desire to do what's right. He has a desire to keep the law. He has a desire to honor God. And what we understand is believers want to please God. Unbelievers don't care about pleasing God. They don't care about keeping the law. In fact, Roman will, Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, for the mind is set that, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The truth is that Paul wants to submit to God's law as an indication that he has been changed. And so what we see is this tension between Paul's new internal spiritual nature and the remaining human nature that's indwelt with sin. And again, notice the frustration that this produces. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. I think that every Christian who's ever drew a breath in history can identify with this frustration, right? How many of you can identify with this frustration this week, right? I don't understand my own actions, right? How many of you have ever asked yourself or prayed to God, why, Lord, do I continue to do this stupid stuff that I do? Right? Can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? Why do I continue to fall in the same stupid sin? Why do I keep doing these same stupid things? I know I'm supposed to do 
something different, but I don't do that. And I know that I'm not supposed to do that, but I keep doing it. This right here that Paul's describing is all of our experiences. All of us. None of us are immune to this. There are no perfect Christians this side of heaven. Not a one. Because if you were perfect, you're either dead or you're self-deceived. There are no other options, by the way. I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, right? But nobody's immune from this. And this should be encouraging to you because this is Paul's own personal experience. Paul is speaking about his own experience as a Christian man. And he goes on and says, Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, this might seem a bit confusing to us at first, but what Paul is arguing is that if the regenerate, born-again part of him right, recognizes that what his flesh is doing is wrong, he's actually acknowledging that the law of God is right and good. Even if he fails to keep the law, he understands it's right and good. He, in his new nature, recognizes the law of God is just and is good. This is further evidence of him talking about himself as a believer because unbelievers don't believe that the law is good. Right? You, you want to know how I know? Go ask people out here in the world that are not believers and ask them. They'll tell you it's not good. In fact, you'll hear people say that, oh, your religion is the cause of violence and harm and wars around the world. Your religion is the most toxic thing in the whole world that's ever happened because to man. Right? Unregenerate people do not see the law of God is a good thing. They hate it. They willfully violate it. Right? There is no conflict in them. And then Paul begins, so now I no longer do what I, I mean, excuse me, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul recognizes what all believers come to understand, that there is a conflict that begins to grow in the believer when they're born again. By the way, this is why I can tell you the prosperity gospel is for the birds. This is, why, this is why when people tell you, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away, are lying to you, right? Because the moment you come to faith in Christ, you begin to recognize there is going to now be a war inside of you, a conflict in you between your flesh and your new nature. Remember Paul said, you were dead in your sins and trespasses and once you once walked. And because of that, you followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were sinners, and we didn't care. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We were regenerate and born again. What was dead has now come to life. Something new has come. We, and, and, and that's our regenerate, born again nature. But this spiritual nature now is in conflict with what's remaining in our human nature. And the reason for that is because sin still dwells in our human nature. Sin which came into the world through Adam, which was passed down to us through our common humanity, still abides in our flesh, even though we have been born again. Now, let's understand what, what, what Paul is not saying here. Because sometimes people get kind of caught up in this, and they try to make this out to be something that it's not. Paul is not advocating for the Greek philosophy of dualism. 
Dualism is a philosophy that, that came from, from, from the Greeks that said that basically anything that's spirit is good and anything that's material, hence flesh, is bad. And so your spirit is good, but your flesh is bad. And the only hope that you have is one day to escape this material world and live forever in the spiritual world beyond. And that what really happens in the, the fleshly part really doesn't matter. This dualism has led many early um, people in the church to reject the incarnation of Christ because his flesh then would have been evil in their point of view. And it also caused them to reject the literal resurrection because why would Jesus then have a new material body if materialism is evil? But the truth is Christ came in the flesh and his flesh was uncorrupted and he earned in his human nature a righteousness before God on our behalf and he lived a perfect righteous life in that flesh. Christ's human nature was real and guess what? It wasn't evil. And Christ's resurrection from the dead was literal and physical. Christ's body, body was raised literally from the dead. And this points to our hope and our future salvation. Not only will our souls be redeemed, but so also our bodies. Our hope is the resurrection of the dead, which Christ is the first fruits of that. Christ came to save our spiritual nature and one day our human nature, our spirit and our bodies will be forever redeemed. So Paul is not advocating for some duality and he's not using this tension as an excuse to sin, as a lot of people will tend to do. Paul is not describing the conflict in us with respect to obeying the law. He is, he is, he, he's not saying that, disobe that, that, that our disobedience to the law isn't important. He's not saying we have an excuse to live in sin. Because Paul calls us in the scriptures to use our bodies for what? For righteousness. And he calls us to put to death the sins that are in us. If you remember Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, he says, Let not sin reign in what? Your mortal bodies, your flesh, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. In the next chapter, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to tell us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So there's a very real expectation that we will grow in obedience to the law of God. So this is not then an excuse for us to be able to sin at will. It never has been. And this is not a call to resign the fight. Paul's not saying that, the fighting, that fighting our impulse to sin is a hopeless battle we can't win. He's not telling us that. He isn't saying that fighting the impulse to sin is pointless because the remaining sin right, isn't even us. What he's saying is that even though that we have been born again, and even though we have been brought from death to life, and we have died to sin and been set free from its power, sin still indwells our human nature, the side of heaven, and it still does affect us and influence us. Paul is saying that it does not, it is not the renewed part of him that willingly sins like before. Because before, when he sinned, every part of him consented to his sin. The same with all of us, right? When, when, when we didn't, weren't aware of God's law, we weren't aware that God existed, 
our hearts and minds and bodies were all of one accord to satisfy our desires. Right? He says, before he was born again, there was no inner conflict. So there, there was no tension. But right now that he's been born again, and he has a new desire, a God-given desire to do what is right. And that new desire to obey God and, and not so that he can be saved, right? but because he's already been saved. Paul, in his new desire, is to do what's right because God has already rescued him. But the indwelling sin in him, the flesh in him, influences how he behaves. In fact, he goes on and says in verse 18, for I, do not, for, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have this, the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do, not, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul's not talking in absolute terms here. He's not saying that he never does good things or what is right, that he's never able to resist what is wrong. What he's communicating is the truth of the gospel, that nothing good dwells in our flesh. This is the truth that the world around us wants to ignore because, because it stands in contrast to what most people in the world believe and want to believe. The world believes that mankind in his original state is what? Essentially good. That's what they believe. That mankind is good and wise and benevolent, but occasionally makes mistakes, but occasionally trips up, occasionally does bad things. That's why so many people believe by default that they deserve simply to go to heaven because I'm a good person. They believe by nature that they're good people. They may be imperfect, it's the language, right? We might be imperfect, but I'm still a good person at heart. But that's just simply not true. Paul says right here, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. We're not good people who occasionally do bad things. We're radically depraved people who occasionally do good things. We're totally depraved. And, and I want you to understand, people struggle with this doctrine of total depravity because they think it means, total depravity means you never do anything that's good. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity is the doctrine that means that every part of your human nature has been corrupted. Your mind, your heart, the seat of your emotions, your bodies. We know our bodies are corrupted by sin. Why? Because they're sick and broken and achy and they don't cooperate with us. Total depravity teaches us that mankind has been corrupted in every one of his faculties. The way that he thinks, the way that he reasons... Our minds are still clouded by sin. We don't always think clearly. Guess what? You know that this is the truth because if, if, if it wasn't cloudy, all your decisions would always be right and you would never make any mistakes. Your emotions are clouded and corrupted by sin. So it's not that we were utterly depraved and that everything we do is always bad. Right? It's just that our entire human nature is tainted by sin and that we can still do good things because God is gracious. And so we're not good people who occasionally sin. We're depraved people who occasionally do the good that we do. And we're not as bad as we possibly can be or want to be. And I'm going to tell you right now, there are moments you want to be a lot worse than you are at times. Like when you get in the middle of Walmart and people start bumping into you and start taking stuff from you, there's something in you that'd like to rise up to the level of serial killer, but you don't, right? Tell me it's not true. You're not always as bad as you want to be. But by the grace of God, we're restrained from that, right? 
He says, nothing good and righteous and holy dwells in the human fallen nature. He's recognizing the frailty and the corruption that exists in his human nature. This human nature struggles and battles against our new regenerate nature. And Paul says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And that, I'm going to tell you right now, I think we all know this feeling. If it's just me by myself, I want to tell you right now, I know this feeling. Right? But Paul understands, is communi- he understands that he's communicating to us the real desire to do good, which is conveyed that he is indeed a Christian. Right? Because unregenerate people have no real desire to do what's honoring to God. If you remember what he said in in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together have all become worthless. No one is good. Not even what? Not even one. What Paul is saying is that he has a desire to do what is right. And that's because he's been born again. And he, but but his human nature, battles against this desire to do what is right, this human nature that's still infected by sin. In fact, Paul further notes, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells, but sin that dwells within me. Now again, Paul isn't saying that he's not responsible for his own sin. I want you to hear me, okay? Because there are people who will take this verse out of context and build a whole doctrine called sinless perfectionism. There are people who believe that once you come to faith in Christ, then you no longer sin. Have you ever met any people like that before? Okay. Right? They believe that when you come to faith in Christ, that, that you don't sin anymore, that it's not even possible. Right? And when you press them and you ask the question, they will say, right, I just don't sin. Well, what happens when you fall down and you, you do something stupid? Well, that's not me. That was the sin in me. Sin does it, but I don't sin. And then they'll quote this verse. Understand, Paul is not denying that he is the one who sins. He's not denying that he is a sinner. In fact, if you remember in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, what did he say? Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or the chief, or I'm the worst kind of sinner, is what he's saying. So Paul's not denying that he's a sinner, and he's not making an excuse for his, his sin. Instead, what he's communicating is the very real conflict that goes on in the life of the believer. It is the tension between the already saved, you know, from the penalty of sin, and the not fully saved from the power of sin. Sin still wields powerful influence in the life of the believer, even the mature ones. And then, when, and then Paul says, it is not I. He isn't saying that he himself isn't the culprit and responsible. What he's saying is as a believer, there's something radically new in him. There's something radically different about him, that he's been given a new nature, that he has been born again. And there's a part of him that once was dead to sin and the trespasses that is now alive in Christ. He has been regenerated and he what he's saying is that this regenerated part of him that's been radically transformed... This part loves God. This part desires to do His will. And and this part doesn't want to do what's wrong. Yet there is still that part of Him, that remaining sin fleshly nature, that's not fully sanctified yet, does want to do what's wrong. 
And there's this conflict within him. And again, I want you to know, if you understand what he's saying here, that's going to explain a lot about your own individual life. And I want you to hear me. That means you're not crazy, right? How many of you have ever thought, am I just crazy? Come on, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not crazy. And Paul writes, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. Now, now, the word law here can, is actually better translated as principle. And what he's saying is there seems to be this principle at work that when the regenerate part of him wants to do what's right, there's a real temptation that seems to accompany that in the flesh to do what's wrong, right? We've all experienced that. When we want to finally forgive someone, we find that the temptation to procrastinate suddenly becomes very high. Do I really want to have this conversation? Not really, right? Not really, right? We, we, we come to this place where we want to come clean and confess because we know, right, confession will help us to get over what we're dealing with. But then suddenly we just go, no, nah, never mind. It's easier just to live in hypocrisy, right? We know that we ought to keep our mouth shut about other people's business, right? We know it, but sometimes people do things and we're like, there's a real temptation that follows to want to gossip, or how about when there's this desire to be in self-control? I know, I just need to better be in better control of my mouth and my attitude. And then, and then suddenly somebody does something that tries your patience. And before you know it, the one finger salute comes out, right? The struggle is very real. And Paul confirms that. As a believer, Paul says, right? For I delight in the law, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law or principle waging war against the law or principle of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Now, Paul is not saying that those who have been set free from sin are now re-enslaved to it. What he's saying and communicating is indwelling sin in our human nature is still very influential and powerful in our lives. And that sin nature is not going to give up without a fight. And it's because of this tension that we either slide then into legalism and try really hard to obey the rules and just, why can't you just do it? Or we slide into this antinomianism where we just let ourselves off the hook and go, it doesn't matter, right? doesn't matter. I'm under grace. Or worse, is you just fall into this hopelessness thinking that there's no way that God can love someone like you. Well, Paul addresses this hopelessness and the solution isn't legalism and it isn't trying harder or antinomianism and dis being dismissive of the law. And it's not simply giving up hope. The solution is what the hope and the solution has always been from the very beginning. Notice what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul declares his inability to rescue himself. Notice that. This body of death. Who, who will rescue me? He declares the truth about his human nature. He is wretched and he is broken. He is sinful and duplicitous. And even though he has been born again, even though that he loves and delights in the law, he still struggles against the influence of remaining sin in his life. And he cries out, who will save me? Notice he doesn't say, what will save me? He doesn't say, what eight steps do I need to do to save me? He says, who will save me? And then in verse 25, he gives us the answer. He says, but thanks be to God through, our, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
That's the answer, brothers and sisters, that you're looking for. The answer is what it always has been. It is Jesus. That's the answer to legalism in your own life. That is the answer to antinomianism and and the desire to just ignore the law of God. That is the answer to self-doubt and self-loathing. The answer is always Jesus. He and only He will save us. He and only He can justify us. He is the one who indwells us. It is He and His image that we are being conformed to slowly, little bit by little bit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who rescues us. And so the answer isn't, well, since you're a Christian, the law really doesn't matter. We all make mistakes. No, the answer is to pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. And the answer isn't, you know what? You're a follower of Christ. You just need to try harder and you need to, you just need to be more obedient and you just need to make a list and follow that list. Trying harder to keep the rules. No, that is not the answer. The answer is to hold on to Jesus because He's your only hope. And the answer when you find that you're in conflict between the old nature and your indwelling sin and your new nature when we struggle to do what is right and we know what we ought to do, right? But we struggle to do it. The answer isn't for us to just give up. The answer is to throw ourselves completely and totally onto Christ. The answer is turn your eyes upon Jesus. Grab a hold of Jesus. Hold on to Jesus because only Jesus can save you. Are we convinced of that, brothers and sisters? Only Jesus can give you new life. Only He can help you grow in obedience. Only He can help you to overcome your indwelling sin. Now here's what I'm, I'm saying. First of all, what I'm not going to say is that we have an excuse to sin and live in unrepentant sin. And I'm not saying that we're not responsible for the sin in our own lives because we are. And I'm not saying that we are not to apply grace-driven effort in our pursuit of holiness and obedience to God. We are called to apply grace-driven effort. We are called to follow Christ. We are called to walk in obedience to the best of our abilities. We have been born again, right? And we've been moved to a new love of God, and that ought to spur us on towards obedience. So I'm not saying that we don't have a part to play, but what I am saying is the answer is never self-loathing, where you continually beat yourself up as being hopeless, as being a wretch that God can't possibly love. Christ, the King of kings, died for you. Hear me, brothers and sisters. For you, Jesus died on the cross. And though it is true that you are a wretched sinner, though it is true that you are still a wretched sinner, you, by the grace of God, have been forgiven of all of that sin. And you are now a child of the King. You have been reconciled into the family God, not as someone He tolerates as an an old enemy. You've been reconciled to God as family. So turn your eyes and your heart upon Him. And the answer, again, is not antinomianism or disobedience to the law. 
Your battle with sin isn't to lead you to a place where you just simply say, I'm saved by grace, it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature, and as a new creature, you ought to desire to honor God with all of your life. So turn your eyes upon Him and get busy following Him. And again, it's not legalism. The legalism is not the answer where you continually are in this cycle of trying harder and keeping all these lists and trying to do better. I'm going to tell you one of the most disconcerting things in in Christianity and many sermons that I've listened to is even though people don't mean it to come off this way, the answer at the end of the sermon typically is this. Okay, now go try harder. Go out and try harder. The answer is not trying harder. The answer is what it's always been. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the answer. Repent and believe the gospel. When you came to faith in Christ, you did so because you were convicted of your sin and you came to understand that Jesus is your only hope, that He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and died to make atonement for your sins and was raised three days later, proving that He is God in the flesh and that He can do what He promised to do, which is to save you from your sins. And it was by repenting and turning away from your old life and your self-righteousness and putting all your hope on Christ and believing the gospel and what He's done for you, that you came to faith. You believed in Christ and trusted Him, and you were justified and became a child of God. By faith, you became a member of the family of God. By faith, you were reconciled to God as as, as a child. And it is by that same faith that you will live life even as you battle indwelling sin. It is by continually doing what we did in the beginning. Remember when, when Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, the Greek literally means be repenting and believing. You don't believe just one time and stop believing. You believe and you continue to believe day after day. It's the same thing with repenting. Guess what? <laughs> Some days you're going to have to repent of your sin, the same sin a thousand times in a day. Right? right? But you don't. it doesn't stop you from believing, does it? That's the truth. By repenting and trusting in Christ, you continue to follow Christ even as your flesh wars against your spirits. It's by abiding in Christ through faith that we will continue to grow in our sanctification, progressively growing in obedience to the law. And here's the thing, this struggle will continue all the way until the very last moment of your life. Until Christ comes to take you home, whether it's death or His second coming, you will continue this battle in remaining sin, but you still have only but one hope to continue it. Repent and believe the gospel. So then when you come to the same place that Paul is, why do I keep doing this stupid stuff? You go, Lord, I need you. I'm trusting in you. I have nothing to offer except that you told me if I believe, I'm saved, and I believe. And so I'm trusting in you to change my heart because I can't do it. I can't fix it. I mean, tomorrow I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try not to do stupid stuff. But only you, Lord, can change me. And I realize that even if I overcome this sin, it's not because I've accomplished anything. It's what you've done in me for your glory. And it should push you back to the place of worship again and again and again. We come to the foot of the cross time and time and time again. It should be driving us continually to the same place where it does Paul. Who will 
save me. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as you prepare your heart now for Christmas, as we begin to think about what the incarnation means to us, as we begin to then go out into the world and we bump into people who are sinful, let us not then look at them with eyes of judgmentalness of going, oh, you horrible, sinful person. Remember, you're just like them, but by the grace of God that he has transformed something in you. This should make you more compassionate towards them. It should make you more loving and gracious towards them. But guess what? Even when you find that that doesn't actually happen and you still look at them with a dirty look, you need to go, Lord, I repent of that. And I'm just trusting you to save me. Because it's just confirmation that I can't do this by myself. But as you prepare your hearts for Christmas, let this message make you more tender to those that are around you more loving to those that who need to hear the gospel. Because I'm going to tell you right now, all your friends, all your family, your kids, your grandmas, your neighbors, your, the people you meet at Boron Food Market, they all need the exact same thing. They need Jesus Christ. So be an instrument in his hand, right? Not as someone who has got it all together, but as a fallen, broken sinner who's been saved by the grace of God who can then point other fallen sinners to the same grace. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.